You can be seated. You can turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Well, this morning, this particular sermon, I like to think of as my Alabama sermon. And what I mean by that, think about a football season. Every game in a season is important. The team needs to do well, try to win every game. But some games stand out as particularly important. Those are the games that you really want to be at. You really want to be part of that game because the whole nation is watching and the season is on the line. It hinges on those four quarters. That's like the Bama game when we go and play Alabama. Well, in a sermon series like this summer, every sermon is important. We're not going to waste your time with fluff. But certain sermons stand out as particularly important because eternity is on the line. And that's this morning. We're going to talk about the topic of salvation, about how you personally find deliverance from sin and from hell so that you can spend eternity with God your Father in heaven. Eternity is literally on the line this morning in the topic that we're looking at. So, let's make sure that we get it right. Let's jump into this topic of salvation. Let's begin with a definition. What is salvation? What do we mean by that word salvation? Well, we're in a church, so we should start with what the Bible says about salvation. Now, in the Bible, if you read through your Bible from beginning to end, you're going to see save or salvation many times. It's a very common word. Now, what do most people assume when they see save or salvation in their Bible? They assume that means get to heaven. That's that's a normal belief for most people, that whenever you see save or salvation, it means escape hell and get to heaven. But that's not actually correct. Because in both Greek and Hebrew, the words save or salvation, they were not technical terms for getting to heaven. They were just really common everyday words that simply meant to deliver someone. To rescue someone from something bad, something that they need to be rescued from. So as you read through your Bible, you'll see this word used in a lot of different ways. And every time you see it, you need to ask yourself, what is this person being rescued from in this verse? Sometimes they're being rescued from sleep. That's a pretty funny one. It just means to wake up. Sometimes they're being rescued from prison. That means to be released from jail or rescued from sickness. That means that you, that you are healed, that you recover from an illness. Sometimes it means to be rescued from God's wrath or from the penalty of sin or from the power of sin. And that's just a small subset of the total uses of this word. It's a very common word in the Bible. This morning, what we want to focus on is those last few uses. What I like to call salvation with a capital S. The salvation you really care about. Not just getting better from a sickness, but escaping sin and hell and spending eternity with God. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Salvation with a capital S. And what do you need to know about salvation with a capital S? Well, the first thing you need to know is it's really, really big. Most people have a very small view of salvation. I don't know if you've seen that. Most people think of Christian salvation as simply a get-out-of-hell card. Salvation is just a ticket to get on the bus bound for heaven when you die. Well, that, that kind of view of salvation, it reminds me of the person who goes out and buys an iPhone, and all they ever do with it is make phone calls. 
Now, an iPhone can do that relatively well, but there's so much more it can do. You can check your email, you can get directions, you can take pictures of your kid, you can catch Pokemon. I've actually, I was told earlier this week that there is one on our stage behind me, and that kind of freaks me out. I don't know what to do with that, but go ahead and knock yourself out if you've got a phone, because it can do that. Buying an iPhone and using it only to make phone calls, that's a waste because there's so much more it can do. Well, that's salvation in the Bible. Yes, it is a get out of hell card. It will get you out of hell. It does that quite well. But it does so much more. It's so much bigger than that. Salvation is a huge thing in Scripture. It begins with an event at a, at a moment in time, an instant when you believe, when you trust in Jesus, there is the event of salvation. That's what a lot of people think of, that event, but it does not end there because after the event, a process begins, a process of growth, also called salvation, but we, we call it a little more technically sanctification. As God grows a believer to be more and more like Jesus, that growth process is so big and so important that we've given it a sermon of its own. So Jared is going to come talk about sanctification on August 7th because it's a huge topic. But, but salvation does not end with the process. It culminates in, in a destiny in the future for all who believed that we call glorification. That's when Jesus returns and he, he takes us with him. He resurrects us and he begins to perfect and remake the earth. And, and that destiny is so big and so important that we also gave it a sermon of its own. So Jacob is going to come teach on August 14th about the destiny you're looking forward to, which is also part of salvation. So this topic of salvation is, is so big and so important that we've given it three sermons. Actually, we've given it four because Brian's going to come next week here and talk about eternal security, the safety of your salvation. It's a huge topic, so much more than I could talk about in one day. So all I'm going to try to do this morning is talk to you about the first part of salvation, just the beginning of it, the event of salvation that happens the moment that you trust in Jesus. I want to look at scripture and and teach you some things about that event, help you see just how big, how grand the event of salvation is. So let's talk about the event of salvation. First thing to know about the event of salvation is that it goes by many names, I don't know if you've noticed this in life, but the bigger or the greater something or someone is, the more names people tend to give them. So, Babe Ruth. Actually, Babe Ruth is not his real name. George Herman Ruth. He was such a good baseball player that fans gave him tons of names. The Babe, the Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Swing, the Terrible Titan, the Colossus of Clout, and a whole lot of others that I didn't just want to keep rambling on. They gave him lots of names because he was really great. Well, that's how it works. The bigger, the grander, the greater something is, the more names it's given. So salvation, the event of salvation is so big and it's so grand that one word would not suffice. And so God created a ton of words to describe this huge thing called salvation. You'll find lots of words for it in the Bible. And each name, each word describes salvation from a different perspective so you can see how great and valuable it is. So I'm going to walk you through some but not all of the names that God has given us in Scripture for the event of salvation. The first one, let's go ahead and look at the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. 
It's actually a couple of the names here, but I'm just going to look at one of them to begin with. Verse 7. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. First word that I want us to talk about is forgiveness. To forgive. To forgive means to let go. Actually, literally in Greek, it means to just let go. You had something you were holding and you let it go. So forgiveness is that there's been an offense committed against you, and instead of holding on to that offense, which is your right, it was an offense committed against you, you let it go, you, you let it drift away, be washed away, be forgotten. Well, that's what God does the moment of your salvation, the event of salvation, the moment you trust in Jesus, God lets go of all your sins, past, present, and future, you sinned against him, he opens his hands and lets go of that sin. So this washed away, it's forgotten. It's gone. God had the right to hold on to it, but he let it go. Forgiveness is the personal side of salvation. Because when we sinned, we didn't sin against a religion. We sinned against a person. Our sin is sin against God himself. He has the right to hold on to those offenses. But the moment you trust in Jesus, God lets go of them all. And your sins are washed away. So that's the first word, forgiveness. A second word that God uses, a second name for this event of salvation we find, especially in the book of Romans. You see it many times. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Second word or name that I want us to talk about is justified or justification. This looks at salvation from the legal standpoint. Whenever you hear or see in your Bible the word justify or justification, you should think about a courtroom because that's where the word comes from. We're in a courtroom and we're the, the criminal party. We're being tried. We've done wrong. We have sinned. God knows that we sinned. He's the judge. He sees the sin. And yet, rather than declare us guilty, God says not guilty. That's justification. In the sight of the court, you are not guilty. Your crimes are not held against you. You are acquitted. You are in the right in the eyes of the court. So that's justification. The moment that you trust in Jesus in the courtroom of the universe, God looks at you and even though he sees all of your sin, he bangs his gavel and says, not guilty, acquitted. You are in the right in the eyes of the court. So that's justification, the second name that's used for the event of salvation. Third one, look again at at verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. You saw it there. In him we have redemption. So what is redemption? Well, redemption is an economic term. It looks at salvation as a transaction. It looks at it from the economic perspective. To redeem means to buy someone or something out of slavery. So you were a slave. If you read the Bible, you'll find out you were a slave of sin and Satan. So you you were born belonging to the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of sin. And Jesus stepped in. And the moment that you trust Jesus, Jesus redeems you. He pays the price to set you free. Now, you're not set absolutely free. You now belong to Jesus. He buys you from sin and Satan, so you belong to him. So if you picture your life like the title on your car, you know, that little green or blue sheet of paper that you get when you buy a car. Well, you're the car in this analogy. You're the car and previous owner says sin and Satan and new owner says Jesus Christ. And that economic exchange happened the moment that you trusted in Jesus. 
He redeemed you out of the kingdom of sin and Satan. Now you belong to Jesus Christ. So that's what it means to be redeemed. Okay, fourth word that's commonly used to describe your salvation. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a famous verse. It describes what life was like for you before you trusted in Jesus. You were dead. You, you were spiritually dead. The result is you could not resist sin. Sin was inevitable for you because you did not have any spiritual life in you. You were spiritually dead. And so God had to do something. So look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the fourth word to describe the event of salvation. Regeneration means to be made alive. You were dead, you are made alive, you are regenerated. What the Bible is is saying is that all of us on, on the day of our conception, we are made physically alive but not spiritually alive. People who have not yet trusted in Jesus are physically alive, but not spiritually alive. They're spiritually dead. They can't please God. They can't relate with God yet. Not until the moment they trust in Jesus. But the moment that they trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit does something in them that's analogous to conception. He suddenly makes them spiritually alive. When my brother, who's younger than me, I I remember the day that he trusted in Jesus, my mom went into the kitchen and baked him a birthday cake. It was really sweet. She did that to show him this day is as momentous as the day of your birth. That was when you became physically alive. This is when you became spiritually alive. The moment you trusted in Jesus. Now you are spiritually living. Okay, so that's the fourth way that God describes it. Regenerated or a common synonym would be born again. Fifth word that God uses to describe, and, and regeneration is kind of the spiritual perspective on it fifth word we find in the book of Colossians uh, chapter 1 verse 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. This is again describing you before salvation. You were God's enemy. You were separated from God. You were hostile towards God. But something changed. The moment that you trusted in Jesus, verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you. This is Jesus. Jesus has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Fifth word or name that's used throughout the Bible to describe the event of salvation is reconciliation. To reconcile means to make peace. So you were reconciled. You you were brought into peace with God. The moment you trusted in Jesus, Jesus took you from an enemy of God, separated from God, hostile towards God, and he made you a friend of God. You are now at peace with God. Reconciliation is really easy to illustrate with the events that are going on in our nation today. So you look around at our culture. We are not a culture at peace. You have a lot of groups in hostility with one another along racial or political or ideological lines. It's like we're separated from one another, yelling and shouting at one another. That's the opposite of reconciliation. So, so reconciliation, it doesn't just mean that these groups stop shouting at each other. Reconciliation means they become one. 
Everybody joins together. There is no us versus them. There is no distance. There is no separation. We now are hand in hand together. That's what reconciliation looks like. And what the Bible's telling you is the moment you trusted in Jesus, that's what happened between you and God. You were separated. You were enemies. You were hostile at God. Even though he loved you, you didn't love him. But now Jesus has brought you near. He's reconciled you, so you are now a friend of God. That's pretty amazing, but actually the next name for salvation is even greater. Next one is even better than this. So not only has God reconciled you through Jesus Christ, but look at chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Salvation goes beyond just reconciliation to adoption. Adoption means that God has taken a person who was his enemy and made that person now his son or his daughter. Adoption goes beyond reconciliation. You're not just at peace with God. You're not just a friend with God. You are now God's child forever, his son or his daughter. And I want you to think about how incredible and and extravagant that is for a moment. So, So think about what happened before you were saved. You sinned against God. And it's important to understand, I don't think we, we think about this often enough. When I sin, I am actually hurting God. Have you ever thought about that fact? If you read the Old Testament, look at the emotional pain that God expresses of himself in the prophets. Sin is not an academic issue to God. Sin is not even an annoyance to God. Sin, it tells us, is something God grieves over. When Jesus showed up on earth... He worked his ministry for three years, and then he rode to Jerusalem. And as he crested the hill and looked down at Jerusalem, where he knew they were going to kill him, what did he do? He wept. Why? Because sin grieves the heart of God. When I'm sinning, I am actually sinning against God. I I am doing something that causes him great grief, great pain. That's important to recognize when I sin. And what this text is telling us is that I had sinned, I had hurt God, and rather than just forgive me and send me on my way, God forgave me and brought me into his family. That's so much harder than just forgiveness. If my neighbor sins against me, it's hard enough just to forgive him, but then he goes into his house and I go into my house and I don't have to look at him. I don't have to be reminded all the time of what he did. And yet God didn't just forgive you and send you on your way. No, you hurt God and yet he forgave you and he welcomed you into his own home as part of his family. It would be analogous. Imagine if the sniper in Dallas did not die and for some reason was not put in prison. And one of the families of the officers he killed said, hey, we want to adopt you as our own son. You're going to live with us. We're going to see you every day. We're going to sleep in the same home as you every night. We're going to call you our son. We're going to pay for you to go to college. We're going to support you every day for the rest of your life. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? Yet that's exactly what God did for you. You were an enemy and God said forgiveness isn't enough. I'm going to forgive you and then I'm going to adopt you so that I see you every day for the rest of eternity. That's incredible. That's extravagant. That's how big salvation is. He's adopted his former enemies into his own home as his own children. Now you look at this topic of salvation and it's, it's so big. There's so many words used for it. God kindly gave us a summary term and that is eternal life. 
So whenever you see the phrase eternal life, like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is a catch phrase. It catches all of it. Eternal life is not just go to heaven. If you thought that, that's not correct. You actually, you have eternal life right now. Eternal life is the summary of everything God has given you. Forgiveness, justification, redemption, regeneration, reconciliation, adoption, all of it together is the gift we call eternal life. So this event of salvation that happened the moment that you believe, it's huge, absolutely huge. It includes so much more than get out of hell. Now let's move on to the second thing that the Bible tells us about the event of salvation. The Bible tells us that it is both free and costly. It is both absolutely free and shockingly costly. Let's talk about first the freeness of this gift. Look at chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, start in verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. You should probably see that Paul really, really, really wants you to understand that salvation is by grace. He keeps telling you over and over, saved by grace. What is grace? Grace is when you get something good that you do not deserve. Grace is a gift. You didn't earn it. It's not something that you merit. It's, it's a gift. So when Paul says that salvation is by grace, what he's trying to help us understand and really get clear, this is a clarifying passage. It's meant to make salvation crystal clear in your mind so that you can see the freeness of it. Paul wants you to understand salvation is not a reward. What is a reward? You do something good to get something good. Okay? No. You, you did good works there. In fact, with a reward, you had to do the good works on the front end. You have to do lots of good stuff, and then God rewards you with salvation. That is how a lot of religions think about salvation. Paul says, no. There, there are no works at all. So salvation cannot be a reward. But, but more than that, let's even go further. Not only is salvation not a reward, salvation is not a bargain. What is a bargain? Well, a bargain is when you get something good for a reduced price. This shirt was a bargain. My wife found this shirt for $3. $3. She's like the best bargain hunter ever. That's a shockingly good bargain, and yet it's still not free. It's like I still had to work for $3. Now, it didn't take me nearly as long as if she had to pay $30 for the shirt, but still it's not a gift. There's works, a reduced amount of works, but Paul says no works. So it's not a bargain. Salvation is not a reward, and it's not a bargain. And third, it's not a loan. You're alone. What is alone? Alone is when you get something good right now, but you pay for it later. So alone is like when you go buy a car with zero money down. That's a gift, right? No, I hope none of you fall and pray to that. No, you'll be paying for that car for like the rest of your life on the back end because it was alone. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of people think about salvation. Yeah, salvation is a gift that God gives you, but now for the rest of your life, you better do good works to keep it or to prove that you have it. 
Good works are added on the back end. But Paul says, no, no works are required. Not a reduced amount of works, not on the front end, not on the back end. Your works don't play any part in it at all. Salvation is not alone. God gave you the gift. You don't owe him anything back. It's a free gift. That's what grace is. Paul wants us to understand with just not leaving any room for confusion. Salvation is by grace alone. One of my favorite verses to take people to, Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified, that's that big legal term, by faith apart from works of the law. No works at all factor in, not before, not after. You are saved by grace alone. So salvation is a gift from God that has no strings attached. You don't have to do good stuff before. You don't have to do good stuff afterwards. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to keep it. No strings attached at all. It's an absolutely free gift. But here's the key to understand. Just because salvation is a free gift does not mean that it is cheap. Now, Actually, salvation is shockingly expensive. But not for you. It was shockingly expensive for God. So what did it cost God to save you? His son, Jesus. The Lord and King of the universe, who created everything, had to die so that you could be saved. That's the cost of salvation. It's the biggest cost ever paid for anything because Jesus, in his person, is more valuable than the entire universe put together. Why? Because he made it. The creator is always more valuable than the creation. And so the creator himself died, shed his blood for us, to purchase us. It is, a, it is a cost that we cannot fathom. We cannot imagine this infinite cost that God paid to free us from sin. So there is absolutely nothing cheap about salvation. It is the most expensive thing anyone has ever paid for, but God paid the entire price. Free for you, unimaginably costly for God. That's the event of salvation. Third thing that God wants you to understand about this event of salvation is that it is both ancient and instant. It is both ancient and instant. Look again at the book of Ephesians. Let's go to chapter 1, start in verse 4. It says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Chose and predestined. Now we're headed into some pretty deep waters. Talking about the topic of predestination. I'll just tell you right off the bat, there's a lot about this topic I don't understand. Predestination goes right over my head. It's so deep. It's, it's so thick. I, just, I cannot wrap my mind fully around it. But here's what I do know about predestination from this passage. The first thing that I learn about predestination from this passage is that it affects particular people. God chose particular people in eternity past to be saved. How do I know that? Because of the word adopted. How do you adopt a child? You don't go adopt a group. You don't go pick out a nameless big group. You choose a child by name. That's how God chose you. 
and eternity past, you by name. It's the first thing I know. It's God chose particular people in eternity past to be saved. Second thing I learned from this passage, he did not choose us because we were worth it. He did not choose particular people because those particular people were better than other particular people. Predestination is not God sitting in eternity past, way over here, looking into the future and looking to see who would choose him. Oh, Blake, he would choose me. So I pick him on my team. If that was the case, then salvation is not by grace alone. Why? Because I brought something to the table. I was better than my neighbor. I was more likely than my neighbor to choose God, so God chose me. That's not grace. No, the reason God chose me has nothing to do with me. I'm not better than my neighbor. I'm not more likely to believe. How do I know that? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all equally children of wrath. I am not better than my neighbor. What motivated God to choose me was simply his free, unconditional love. I have no idea why he chooses some people rather than others. I just know it's not because we're better, because we're not. Because that's the second thing that we learn about predestination. The third thing that we learn about predestination from this passage is that it is meant to give us peace. Predestination was never meant by God to be something that theologians debate and fight about. That's not the point of it. Predestination is meant to give believers incredible security. Why? Because think about it. What what is this telling you? It's telling you that your salvation actually began when? Not the moment you trusted in Jesus, but an eternity past when God chose you by name. That's when my salvation began, infinite ages ago. And so that gives me perspective on my life in the present. What could I possibly do right now at the present time that could cost me salvation if God chose me in eternity past already knowing everything I would do? All of my life was future to him. He knew it all, and yet he chose me. And so if my salvation is already infinite years old, then I don't have to worry about doing something dumb today that could break it. You've been saved, in a sense, for eternity. When God chose you in eternity past, and that truth is meant to give you incredible security. There's nothing you're going to do today that's going to surprise God, or blow his socks off, or make him think, oh my gosh, what have I done with that person? No, he knew every day you would ever live and chose you anyways in eternity past. So nothing that happens in the present time is going to change that. So God chose you infinite ages ago. Salvation is more ancient than you can possibly imagine. And yet it is also instant. And what I mean by that is is what you saw in in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Your faith matters. The moment that you exercise faith, that you choose to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, God saves you. Okay, so this, this is getting us now to this mystery that I just, I cannot explain. How can it possibly be that God both chose you in eternity past and you choose God in the present? How does that work? Why are you saved? Are you saved because God chose you infinite ages ago or because you chose to believe today? Both. You don't get to pick. 
I can't logically explain that. Humans, we, we like neat, tidy solutions to our questions, and, and God doesn't really care. So sometimes he doesn't give us neat, tidy solutions. Sometimes he says, this is way bigger than you. Salvation, you're never going to figure this out. Way too big for you, so you just got to trust me. Predestination and human free will, they're both true. I chose you and you chose me. Both. And you see that right here in Ephesians. You saw God's predestination in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You see our choice to believe in verse 13. In him, that is Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You believe and then you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Your choice to believe matters. Okay, so God chose you and you chose God. And I can't explain how those are both true. I just know that they are. The way that you are saved, your part, what you must do is believe. You must have faith in the the gospel of your salvation, this message of, of good news. That there's a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life. You must be persuaded at some point in your life that that's true. That's what faith is, persuasion that something is true. The moment that you're persuaded that's true, you are saved. And so let's move on to the most important part of this whole sermon. Have you believed? Has there been some moment in your life when you have become persuaded that Jesus, the Son of God, really did die for your sins and then rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life with all those things it brings as an absolutely free gift. Well, let's talk for a minute about some of the reasons people have told me that they don't believe. Why do people choose to not believe in Jesus and in the gospel? Well, one of the reasons that I commonly hear is that it's just too hard to believe. And I sympathize with this. I'm a person who struggles with doubt. I understand. It is hard to believe in a God we cannot see and in a virgin birth and in miracles, and in a resurrection when we don't see any of that today. I can't look around and see crazy miracles going on. I can't see resurrections. I can't see virgin births. I can't go into a science lab and prove or reproduce any of those things. And so it is hard to believe in this. So why do I believe in something that I cannot see? Well, I'll give you the short answer for me. Because of all the evidence we have in history of the resurrection of Jesus. I shared that before. That's the determiner for me. That's like the domino that falls and everything else falls in with it. If Jesus really did walk out of a tomb 2,000 years ago, then it is all true. If Jesus did not walk out of a tomb 2,000 years ago, none of it's true. So how do you know that it really happened? Well, fortunately, God gave us a ton of historical evidence. If you would like to see and interact with that evidence, just go to our website, go to Frequently Asked Questions, and it's right there. We put it for you, I think it's the top four or five reasons why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I'd love to challenge you to read that evidence. And if you're still struggling, please, please come talk to me. Shoot me an email, call me, whatever works for you. Let's talk through the evidence. We're not taking a blind leap here. It is hard to believe, but it's not impossible to believe. If you will look at the evidence, it's there. So first reason people often get, it's too hard to believe. Second reason people will give, it's too good to be true. You're telling me that God offers eternal life as an absolutely free gift. You don't have to do anything before, during, or after. Come on. There's no such thing in this world as a free lunch. Well, every other religion on earth agrees with that statement. 
Because every other religion on earth gives you stuff to do. You, you either got to obey the law or you got to give alms. You got to go on a pilgrimage. You got to make some sacrifices. You got to do something to earn eternal life or whatever they call salvation. Well, Christianity gives a different answer. Christianity says, no, that's not God telling you that that's too free. That's your pride telling you that. Because humans, especially adults, our kids don't struggle with this, but we adults do. We don't like free stuff. We think we do, but we actually don't. If someone comes up to you and says, I know you're in need. I'm going to give you something absolutely for free. What do we do? No, it's, I'm sure, maybe I can come next week and mow your lawn. I'm going to at least write you a thank you card. What is that? That's pride. Now, you should still write thank you cards, but it's pride in our hearts. So I, I don't want anything absolutely free because that means I'm weak. That's humiliating to me. I want to earn my own way. I want to be my own man. I want to pay my part. Even if it's at a bargain, I at least want to pay my part. But that's pride. And Christianity says God will have none of it. God won't share the glory of salvation with you. Now, you, you don't even earn 1% of it. You don't get any of it. 100% God. It's all him. And I look at that and, and I say, to me, that's actually proof that Christianity has to be true. Because what adult human would ever invent a religion where we give away the most precious thing that has ever been for absolutely free and no strings attached? No one does that. That's not a man-made religion. A man-made religion says, I've got something really good. I'll give it to you, but you've got to give me something first. Or at least on the back end, you've got to pay me back. That's man thinking. Christianity is so radically free, it can only be from God. No one else would invent something where you give away the most precious thing in the universe as an absolutely free gift. Third reason that people will give me for why they just can't get to to this point of belief in Jesus, there's just too many hypocrites in the church. Yeah, we all know people who are Christians or claim to be Christians who do really bad things, who are greedy who are just mean people, who are bigots, who are are just awful people. What do you do with that? Well, we see that, but we would challenge you with the fact that every group of people on earth, whether it's religious or political or social or ethnic, every group has bad outliers. And we would ask you, please don't judge the group by the outliers. Please give us a second chance to show you that there's something special here. I've been here at Southwood since we opened, eight years now. And I can promise you that there is a family here that does like you and will love you, will accept you, will help you, will care about you, will sacrifice for you because that's what they've done for me. That's what I've seen them do for each other. Please give us another chance to show you. Please don't judge the group by the outliers. There's incredible love and grace in this place, and we'd like a chance to show you that. Fourth reason that I commonly get for why someone won't trust in Jesus, well, Christianity is just too exclusive. Come on. Okay. It's nice to hear that God sent his son to die for our sins. That's great. I like that. That's a great idea. But are you really telling me that all of these other religions with all of their other good ideas aren't true also? Who are we to judge? Here's the problem. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. That's just a fact of life. You all know that. Many of you follow the serial podcasts. And so there's a guy in those podcasts, Adnan Syed. He either murdered his ex-girlfriend or he did not murder his ex-girlfriend, but both can't be true. Right? There's no middle ground. It's not a matter of opinion. It either happened or it didn't. 
The truth is out there. We believe that because we believe that truth is exclusive. That's why everybody's watching the show. They want to know the truth. So either God exists or God doesn't exist. It cannot be both. Either Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus did not rise from the dead. It can't be both. And if he rose from the dead, then Christianity is the only way and you must believe it. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then you are wasting your time in this building this morning. There is no middle ground because truth by its very nature is exclusive. You must choose whether you believe it or whether you don't. You must get to that point in your life where you say, this is either true or it's not. If it's true, then it's completely true and I give it my all. And if it's not, then this whole Christianity thing is a waste of time and I need to leave. That's the simple decision that you face. Now, if you finally are at a point where you say, man, I guess I am persuaded. I really think this is true. What do you need to do? Well, it's, it's really simple. It's not, not a work. All I'd ask you to do is just say to God, thank you. In your mind, just right now, to say, God, thank you. I'm a sinner. I, I deserve to be your enemy. I deserve your wrath. And instead, you love me so much, you sent your son. And I believe he died for my sins, and then he rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life as a free gift. And I'm so thankful for that. Thank you, God, for the gift of eternal life. And that's it. That is the event of salvation. You are born again, you are justified, you are forgiven, you are adopted, you are reconciled. It all becomes true in that instant for you. If there's anything holding you back from that, please come talk to me, shoot me an email, talk to someone here. We'd love to help you think through that. So I hope that you have believed the gospel. If you have believed the gospel, then the application is really simple. Who are you telling it to? To whom much is given, much is required. If God gives you much, then he expects much of you. Well, guess what? If you're in this room and you've trusted in Jesus, you have been given much. Look at what we just studied. Justification, adoption, reconciliation, eternal life. All of that is yours, and we haven't even gotten to the whole rest of salvation that the other guys are going to pack out. It's all yours already. So you, you just need to choose to believe. It's kind of like a mental thing. You just need to like flick some switches in your brain and understand you are richer than Bill Gates. You are actually right now. You are richer than any billionaire on earth. And you are more privileged than any movie star. Jennifer Aniston has nothing on you. You are the lucky one. You are. You're the 1% of the 1%. Because you have eternal life. And compared to eternal life, nothing on earth matters. So you are the lucky ones. What that means is you've been given much. And what that means is that much is required. God has given you salvation so that you would share salvation. That's how it's designed. Great gifts are meant to be shared. So God has given you the greatest thing ever so that you could give it to someone else. You are, are called to tell other people the good news that we've studied this morning. I hope you know it now. I hope it's clear enough in your mind now that you can go share this good news with someone else. I, I hope as we walk through those reasons people reject the gospel that you're ready now. You can sit down with a coworker. You can talk through their objections to the gospel and you can share the good news of Jesus with them because that's why you're here on the planet earth. That's the only reason you're still here. To share the good news of the gospel to whom much is given, much is required. You are the lucky ones. So let's take that good news that we've received and let's share it with others. As we close 
in prayer, I want you to just spend these moments as I'm praying. I want you to picture someone in your life, see their face, hear their name, someone who you know through work or school or your neighborhood um, who doesn't yet know Jesus as their Savior. I want you to picture that particular person. I want you, as I'm praying, to pray for that person. That they would come to know this gift of salvation that God has given you and that God would use you to share the good news with them sometime even this week. So let's pray for the people in our life who don't yet know Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Those words sound so incredibly inadequate. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us something that is more valuable and more wonderful than we can even imagine. Thank you that you have freed us from our sins. Thank you that you have forgiven us. Thank you that you have justified us, even though we are criminals in our hearts. Thank you, God, that you have regenerated us and made us alive. Thank you that you have made peace with us, even though we were your enemies. And thank you that you've adopted us into your family as your sons and your daughters. We praise you and we thank you for the gift of of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that this gift actually began in eternity past. We praise you and we thank you that you chose us by name, not because we're worthy, not because we bring anything to the table, but simply because you freely love us, unconditionally love us. Thank you for that, Father. We, We praise you and we thank you for making salvation possible by sending your Son. We praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to pay the ultimate price. We confess that salvation is not cheap it is more costly than we can imagine we thank you that you shed your blood for us we thank you god that you have given us this gift of salvation we pray though for those people in our lives and and anyone here in our midst who has not yet received that gift of eternal life we pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts and help them to believe We pray, Lord, that whatever objections they have, that you would remove those objections, that you might even use us to to encourage them and speak truth to them, that you would use us to remove those obstacles in their lives, in their minds, so that they can see the beauty and the truth of the gospel and believe it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use us and our church to draw hundreds and thousands of people into your kingdom and into your family. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We confess, even though we often do not feel like it, that we are the lucky ones. We are the 1% of the 1%. We are so grateful. That is all you. That is not us. It is because of your grace. And we pray that now that you have given us so much, we pray that you would help us to share it with others. Help us to share the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ. In his name, for his praise and his glory, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.